The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 14. Lord willing, we will walk through verses 1 through 14 of Exodus 14 this morning. And um, I want everyone to stop and take notice that Greg actually wore the very first sweater vest of the season. Yeah. Just because it has a zipper doesn't make it, you know, not a sweater vest. So, all right. I'll pay for that one later. I know, but um, let me welcome you here and look forward to just diving into God's Word. Um, We're walking through this book together, and today we're going to come to a section where the Israelites will be faced with fear, and we're going to hear this morning a command given to them that will be repeated throughout their wandering, and really throughout the rest of Scripture. Do not fear. Stand firm. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Well, Franklin D. Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But if you look at a list of phobias on the internet, that's not exactly true. Uh, I want to give you some of these phobias, and if you think, I'm going to give you an opportunity to guess what you think it is, all right? And this will be the audience participation part of our program today. So here you go. First one is uh, androphobia. Robots. No, close. Men. Uh, Fear of men. Anthrophobia. Anthrophobia. Fear of flowers. Yeah. Uh, let me give you another one. I think I had this one. Uh, arithmophobia. Sweater vest. Not sweater vest, no. <laughs> I have thoroughly come to embrace that. Yeah, I'm no, not afraid of those anymore. Arithmophobia is the fear of numbers. Yeah, some of you got that. Um, ataxophobia. It's not what you think it is. The fear of disorder or untidiness. I think my wife has that one. <laughs> Only with my stuff. Anyway. Um, Coulrophobia. C-O-U-L-R-O phobia. Any guesses? Fear of clowns. Some of you have that and you know you do. Ephibophobia. Ephibophobia is the fear of, sorry, the fear of teenagers. <laughs> we don't have that. We love you all. Thank you. All right. Um, gamophobia is the fear of marriage. And the ladies in the room said a lot of men have that, right? Um, there is uh, glossophobia, which is fear of public speaking. Let me get down here to some of these that, uh, that are more pertinent. Uh, Samhainophobia. It's the fear of Halloween. Um, and then my, one of my personal favorite that I found, and I butcher the pronunciation of this, but is arachabuterophobia. No, arachnophobia is spiders. Arachabuterophobia, and I'm killing that, I'm sure is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Yeah. 
the reality is we, make, we can make fun of some of these things. They are, they are at a distance, and very few of us eat peanut butter and, and, and break out in hives, right? Unless we're allergic to peanuts, but that's a different thing. But fear's real, isn't it? All of us struggle with fear on some level. The person who tells you, I'm not afraid, I, I, don't, I don't fear anything, they really do. They get, they, their palms get sweaty when they get on a plane or put them behind the wheel of a newly licensed 16-year-old girl and let them ride in the pasture seat. They will all of a sudden become afraid. All of us deal with fears. And some are more serious than others. And this morning, the Israelites will come to a place where they will stand with their backs to the sea and look as an army approaches with nowhere to run. And they will be afraid. And God says to them what he says to us today, do not be afraid. I want us to look at this together as we look at God's word. Read with me uh, or, or follow along as I read Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let, the, the Israel, let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly or boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihiharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, I want to show you at least four things in this, and I'm going to hopefully run through the first two so that we can get to the last two dealing specifically with fear. The first is this. God leads his people for his glory. God leads his people to get glory for himself. We see this in, in the first four verses. Sometimes God appears to be, I talked about this last week, sometimes God appears to be a terrible general. He tells them to, to encamp in front of the sea, and really this, this uh, he tells them to encamp in front of Pihiharoth between Migdal and the sea. And don't y'all just love hearing me say Pihiharoth? 
Aren't y'all glad that you don't have to stand up here and say, you know, that? But um, most likely Migdal was, was a fort uh, or a base of Egypt. By now they're not completely out of Egypt. They're on the outskirts of Egypt. And, and they're camping in between what is an outpost of Egypt's army and with their backs to the sea. Sometimes it appears that God doesn't know what he's doing, that he appears to send us into terrible situations. He leaves us like he left them, we think, completely vulnerable, with nowhere to go. They're out on Egypt's frontier, and their backs are to the water, and they're surrounded by desert, and they have nowhere to run, and there's an army pursuing them. But God, as I told you last week, knows what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing. In verse 3, God knows ahead of time what Pharaoh will do. He said, Pharaoh will say, they're wandering. The land has closed them in. See, God knows Pharaoh's nature. He knows exactly how Pharaoh will respond to God's move of telling them to encamp in this place. God also knows not only the nature of Pharaoh, but God knew knew, knew how Pharaoh and the Egyptians thought about their gods. See, in, in the ancient eastern world of, of deities, they were always capricious. They changed their mind very quickly. They would manifest themselves one place powerfully here, but then quickly lose interest and, and move on. And even though Pharaoh has now been humiliated and embarrassed after all these plague, plague after plague after plague, Now when he sees the the Israelites wandering in the wilderness as if they don't know where to go, he assumes that their God is like the gods of Egypt and that he has lost interest in them and now he's abandoned them and so he sees it as an opportunity for him to swoop in and to take them back. But our God, the God of the Bible, is not like the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt may be quick to change, but our God never changes. We just sang about that in our song, that he never changes. He stays the same always. We don't sing things that are just accidental here. We're singing truth about our God. He never changes. He's not like those gods. He never abandons his people. He is always with his people. So whatever Pharaoh thinks is happening, it is not happening at all. God is now using Israel. He's baiting the hook with Israel, if you will, to lure Pharaoh in Egypt to come out. And he's doing this for a very particular reason. He's doing this so that he would be glorified. He's doing this to to get glory. What he's he's doing is is to get glory for himself. This is what he says in verse 4. That I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of Egypt will know that I am God. Sometimes you hear me say something like that and you say that he's, he's baiting the hook with Israel and you picture a God that is sadistic and that he, he just uses people for his purposes and washes them away. But don't forget the outcome here. God is doing something for his glory, but in that process, he is also doing something for the good of his people. He has not left them there and abandoned them to, to be slaughtered by the Egyptians. He is going to deliver them through the sea. Why is God so eager to get glory, you might say? Is is God needy? Absolutely not. He needs nothing. The reason he created human beings or creation at all was not so that because there was anything deficient in him. He had 
everything perfectly within the Trinity? Is it because God is on some ego trip and he just needs to be praised all the time? No, again, he had all of this within the relationships in the Trinity. The Spirit glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. There was perfect glory there. God's not on some ego trip. But there are at least a couple of reasons why God is out to get, to get glory for himself. And the first one is pretty simple. The first is because he is actually glorious. He's actually glorious. Nothing and no one else is as glorious as he is. For the person who has a problem with God glorifying himself, let me just ask the question that I've asked before. What else would you have him glorify? What else would you seek for him to worship besides himself? The moment he begins to seek the glory of someone or something else, he ceases to be God because he is displaying there is something higher or greater than he is. And if there is nothing higher or greater than he is, but yet he still seeks to glory, glorify something or someone else, then he becomes idolatrous. He makes an image that is not God and begins to worship it. So God cannot be idolatrous, and there is nothing greater than him. So God seeks his own glory because God indeed is actually glorious. There's a second reason why God here seeks his glory. And it is because he's gracious. He specifically says here in this text that he wants his name to be known. God wants all the people on the earth to know and to fear his name. And we read that and we, we again slip back into this thing of, is he on this ego trip? But the reality is the reason why he wants everyone to know his name is because he has ordained that when sinners call on his name, they will be saved. If God doesn't make much of his name, then we'll never know of his name. And we can never call on him and be saved. Romans 10, 13, and 15, read it. He makes much of his name so that we might know him. This is exactly what plays out in the rest of Scripture. Do you remember when later on, after they're wandering in the wilderness, when they are going to go into the land and they send spies into the land? Remember Rahab? Rahab was not of the Israelites, but she was there of that people, and she hid the spies And she sent the army on another direction, chasing after a wild goose chase. And then she goes back to the spies that she's hidden, and she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens and above and, and, and on the earth beneath. See, when God seeks glory, it is rooted in the fact that he is glorious, but it is also rooted in the fact that he wants us to receive the grace that he extends in Christ. James 2 actually points out that Rahab that day was displaying a reality of faith, that she was saved by looking forward to this Messiah that would come. 
God sometimes, God leads his people for his own glory. Secondly is this. The human heart leads a person to destruction. The human heart leads a person to destruction. The human heart can't stand to do without. Notice in in verse 5, it was the reality of their loss setting in that caused them to change their mind. All of a sudden, they looked around and they saw the Israelites gone. After 430 years of, of slave labor, who was going to build their shrines and their buildings Who is going to do all this? And they they looked and they felt the loss, and that's what hurt them the most. We're addicted to stuff. We're, We're addicted to stuff, and we're moved to make poor decisions because we don't have and I'll illustrate this for you. Uh, either, either we had something and it was taken from us. Think about the, the toddler who's learning to share. He's in the room with other toddlers. And he has a block and it's his favorite block. And another child toddles over to him and reaches out and takes that block. And one of the two will say, mine. Right? And the other one then decides either he's going to retreat and just cry about it, or he's going to retaliate and he's going to hit the other kid. And then one of them's going to cry regardless, right? This is what we do. When when we have things and they're taken away from us, we make poor decisions. The other aspect of that, though, the other side of that is sometimes we want things that we don't have. And it causes us to make poor decisions. I mean, see the credit card industry. I was barely 18 years old, barely out of high school when an envelope arrived in my mailbox. And all of a sudden, Visa and MasterCard and Discover all thought I was the grandest person on the planet. And if I would only sign up and, and fill this form out and send it back into them, they would give me this plastic card. And it was, it was at that time $500 of free money. There's a Generation, In fact, there's an entire culture that is making poor decisions because they want what they don't have. The human heart is addicted to stuff and it can't stand to do without. The human heart reacts exactly according to its nature. Pharaoh strikes out and he takes 600 of his choice chariots and puts them out front. And then he brings all the rest of his chariots along with them. He puts commanders over all of them and he himself goes and they go into chasing after the Israelites. How quickly he forgot the plagues. People say things like, follow your heart. You ever had somebody say that to you? I just don't know what to do. I'm I'm trying to make this decision. And someone says, well, what does your heart tell you to do? Follow your heart. The reality is you better not follow your heart. Your heart will lead you always to destruction. If we actually believe this was good advice to follow your heart, then we would never have any basis, any ground to say that any behavior was ever wrong. We we would look at a person who goes into a church or into a theater and opens fire and kills people, and we would say, oh, but wait, he was following his heart. We would look at a man who leaves his wife after 25 years of marriage to, to go be with a younger woman, and we would say, we can't blame him. He's following his heart. See, the heart is not justification for behavior. The heart will actually lead us to destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. 
God leads his people for his glory. The human heart leads a person to destruction. And then fear, this is the third point. Fear is a root of all sorts of sinful flowers. We often look at these flowers of sin in our life and we think if we could only just cut those off, we would, we would fix ourselves. I could make myself a better person if I could just fix that. But the reality is that sinful flower is connected to some deeper root that, that you've not taken care of yet. And if you simply try to fix yourself by cutting that behavior off, it's the equivalent of taking your lawnmower in the, in the early spring or in the early parts of summer and you've got weeds that have come up and you just run over those weeds and you think, well, took care of those weeds. The reality is just wait a day. Maybe just a few hours, and they'll be right back up. Verses 10 through 12, the Israelites, when they look up and they see Egypt coming, they are genuinely surprised. See, God promised them deliverance, but he didn't tell them how. At this point, they know nothing of the Red Sea. At this point, let's don't, let's don't get so beyond the historical event that we read this as if it's not real. These were real people with their backs to a real sea, looking at a real army coming to destroy them. And they look and they're caught off guard. They're totally caught by surprise. Contrast this with verse 8 where it says that they went out defiantly or boldly. You can watch them walking out of Egypt with such swagger. They're walking by these Egyptians saying, that's right, you better let me go. And now they're greatly afraid. The reaction starts with such promise. In the last part of verse 10, it says they cried out to the Lord, which is what we always should do. When we're up against something that causes us to be afraid, we should always in that moment turn to the Lord and say, God, save me, help me. But their cry is half-hearted at best, and I can show you that from the text. They turn from crying out to the Lord, and they turn to Moses, and they begin to lash out at the very one who's sent to lead them. They don't really want God to help them. They really just want to be out of their predicament. Sometimes we also do foolish things. Fear brings up these sinful flowers in us. In us. When we're afraid, we begin to lash out at the very people that are sent to help us, or to lead us, or that love us the most. Sometimes we do what they did and we look with earthly eyes at spiritual situations. That's exactly what they did. They they turned to Moses and not only did they say, were there no graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here, Moses? But then they also said, what have you done in bringing us here? I mean, think about it. If, If anybody should know at that moment what Moses had done in bringing them there, they should know. They wouldn't even be a nation without God. See, they've stopped looking at their situation through godly spiritual eyes, and they've started looking at their situation with these earthly eyes. If God doesn't come to Abraham and promise to, to make him great and to bless all nations, then they, won't, they wouldn't be a nation at all. If God doesn't preserve them through the famine by sending Joseph to Egypt... 400 and some odd years before this, they wouldn't be anywhere at all. 
If God doesn't promise to send them to a land of their own, then they're still slaves in Egypt or dead along the way. They, they, they blamed Moses for what was really God's work. And it's so easy for us to do that in the middle of something, in the middle of some tragedy in our lives, to begin to look around and forget where we are in this picture, forget whose we are in this picture. We, we often, because of fear, forget that we're going, what, what we're going through is not what we're going to. Thabiti Hani Abuile, who's a pastor now in Washington, D.C., said, Biblical worship gives us a pilgrim posture. It, it reminds us that we're still walking. It reminds us that this world is not our home. We're treading our way to the heavenly city. And then I, I want you to hear what he says next. If we only look forward, we may forget and minimize what God's already done. If we only look backwards, we may forget that we're actually going somewhere and that it's glorious. But I would add to that. If we only look at our present situation, we may stop trusting God and stop moving altogether. See, fear paralyzes you and it sticks you where you are. You stop trusting God and you forget that he's taking you somewhere. The Israelites here, they look and they put their eyes on this huge army. I mean, think about the, 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 just the size of this army coming at them. All the, the, the entire army of Egypt coming out for this people. It speaks to the size of Israel at that moment. But they look and they... They're so afraid. They don't know what to do. They, they're not trained as warriors. They, they don't have any soldier training whatsoever. They've been slaves. They've made bricks for hundreds of years. What will they do? We're reminded of Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. It says, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Andrew Davis, uh, who is a pastor in North Carolina, uh, said this when he was preaching through this text. He said, uh, if, if God is for you, who cares who's against you? If God is against you, who cares who's for you? Reality is, they stand here in this moment and their backs are to the sea and they wonder, what will we do? And they forget to trust God. They forget this fact that God is for them and no matter what power is arrayed against them, it will not stand against their God. Fear produces these sinful flowers in our life. We lash out at the people who are sent to lead us. We, we look at spiritual situations with earthly eyes. Sometimes we try to rewrite history. They say to Moses, is this not what we said to you? Leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. The problem with that is, I don't recall them ever saying that to Moses. They never really say that to Moses. They complain and argue, but when they're walking out in verse 8, boldly leaving, Moses is not behind them, prodding them along, forcing them to go. 
See, sometimes we get in the middle of a situation and we become afraid and fearful in that situation and it becomes very easy for us to rewrite what actually happened. And it becomes easier to start blaming the people around us and taking credit for what we didn't do, but we think we did. We play that old game where the serpent comes into the garden and Eve takes the fruit from the tree and God comes walking into the garden and looks at Adam and says, what have you done? And Adam says, that woman that you gave me. Eve said, that serpent. And that's what we do. Fear causes us to rewrite history. We blame and we shift responsibility. We also then begin to settle for less than God's design. Fear can produce in us a willingness just to settle. We can be afraid that this will never happen, this will never take place, this is never going to pan out the way I thought it would, and so I'll just settle for something less. And this is what they're doing when they say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're forgetting the fact that their design was to serve only one, and his name is God. And in the moment of fear, they say, it would have been better for us just to settle to to, to be their servants and be their slaves. We'd existed for 430 years. Why couldn't we just stay in what we knew as comfortable? And we begin to settle for less than God's design. We do the same thing every time we seek fulfillment in something other than God. People turn to alcohol or, or to pills. We make sports or our children or our jobs ultimate. The body is designed to to be fueled by food, but how many of us, and I'm preaching to myself here, use food for what it was never intended to be? We look at the issue of sex and gender, and our culture says it's up for redefinition. And we're, we're tempted in the church to say, who are we to say that's wrong? And the reality is, God has revealed his design, and he tells us exactly what is right and what is wrong. And we cannot, in this moment of the culture saying to the church, either sit down or shut up. We cannot back down. We cannot be silent. We cannot settle for anything less than God's design. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, in, in looking at the alcohol or pills or food or all these things, says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The, Lord, the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We settle for things that are less than God's design. Fear is a a root of all sorts of sinful flowers, but here's the last point. Faith in God is the anchor that keeps you from being moved. Faith in God is the anchor that keeps you from being moved. Verses 13 through 14, Moses rebukes their fear. There are two ways this, this uh, fear not is used in Scripture. By the way, it's, it's, it's God's command more than any other command is don't be afraid. 
Two ways it's used. Sometimes it's used as a word of encouragement. In the middle of, in the middle of trepidation, it's, don't be afraid. It's the way a, a father might come alongside their child who's afraid, have had a bad dream in the night, and don't be afraid. It's just a dream. But there's another way that it's used in Scripture, and it is rebuke. And here it is rebuke. It is fear not. Moses rebukes their fear. I, I would say, I've been reading a book, and I can't remember offhand the title of that book. I'll try to post it later. It's a, it's a good book about fear, but fear is universal. No one has to teach you fear. Even the child who's grown up in the most protected, sheltered, safe home imaginable knows about fear. They've never had anyone break in on them. They've never been abused. They are loved and and supported and taken care of, yet the light goes off in the night, and all of a sudden they're afraid something's under their bed. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we live in a broken world, and deep within all of us, we look at the world and we know that it's not how it should be. Stephen King, uh, the, the author of so many Uh, scary novels said I like to scare people and people like to be scared and the reality is he's, he's right Charlie Brown said I have a new philosophy I only dread one day at a time now fear is universal so, so how can I say to you, can I stand in this pulpit and do what Moses did and rebuke you and say, fear not? Because we have great reason to not be afraid. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There's nothing that can ever assail our God, that can ever ever thwart our God's plan. There's nothing that can ever peel back the grip of God's hand on you. If you are his child, you are safe. This does not mean that things will always be right in your life, in this life. Jameliot and others went to foreign lands to take the gospel following God's lead. And God there put them in a place where their backs were against the Red Sea and an army was pursuing them and Jim Elliot lost his life, speared to death. Was he not safe? When Jim Elliot closed his eyes here, he opened his eyes to, to see the face of his Savior there. We are kept safe. We have reason to not be afraid. In John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, a, a do not be afraid from me standing in this place would be not only empty, it would be hypocritical because I, I, I too have fears of my own that want to reach up and pull me into their grip from time to time. So for me to say this to you, don't be afraid, 
is the equivalent of of, uh, someone next to you going down on a sinking ship who does not know how to swim and does not have a plan telling you, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But it's not me telling you this. It's God telling you this. The one who holds the universe in his hands, the one who doesn't let a sparrow fall to the earth without his knowledge, he holds you in his hands. You are indestructible in the grip of his protection. Moses told them to to be still and get ready to watch. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. What, What he's telling them there is just stand still and watch. One of my favorite things to do as a kid, and I know I'm out of time, but one of my favorite things to do as a kid was to go and see a parade. Largely because they threw candy out. I used to love to to go and get close to the street and get all the way, even on the street, right there on the edge of the, just where I could sit on the sidewalk or stand up and I'd be right there and the fire engines would come by and the Shriners would come by with all those little cars and they're doing all those little things. Band comes by, all this stuff. And I just think, man, this is awesome. Throw me some candy, you know? This is the picture here. They're standing here and they're seeing this army coming at them. And the hardest thing in the world for them to do is to stand still. Isn't it true that when you're afraid, to stand and be silent is not natural? And God says to us, Moses said to them, stand still and watch. Some of you wrestle with, and I'm, I'm speaking to believers at this point, some of you wrestle with the security of, of your salvation. You wrestle over and over again, just wondering, am I really saved? If I was saved, wouldn't this be true? And to some degree, I would tell you there's wisdom in making sure your salvation is real. The Bible tells us to do that. But at some point, You've got to stop the questioning. When, when it's settled in your mind and when it's not dependent on you and it's dependent on Him and Him alone, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And at some point you've got to say, I'm in Him. And that's enough. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Stop your questioning, be silent, and trust in his name. Let's pray. Lord, I know that there are people all in this room, and even listening to this podcast, that, that deal with and struggle with fear on an ongoing basis. God, there, there is not any ounce of security that I can produce in them. So God, I'm asking you now by the power of your spirit and by the wisdom and the truth of your word, God, that you might help them to rest in you. 
that God, you might deliver them from being paralyzed by that fear. That you might call us to be a people that is going somewhere. That you're leading us somewhere. That you're leading us to your kingdom. God, help us to be a people that looks back and sees what you have done. And we draw strength from that. And it causes us to then look forward and keep moving. To keep trusting in you. To keep believing. So do that in us, I pray, for your glory. For our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a moment to just reflect and respond. Ethan's going to play. He's going to lead us in a moment to sing and respond. If, if you just need to pray or need someone to pray with, uh, there, there are people here that would love to do that. We have a prayer room devoted to that out those doors. But there are people all in this room that would love to just, right where you are even, just take you by the hand or put an arm around you and just pray with you. These steps can be open to you to come and kneel and take it before the Lord. I'll be seated up here on the front row. I'd love for you to come speak to me. Whatever the Lord is dealing with you on, I, I pray that you would submit to his leadership. You'd follow his lead. If today you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would love to talk with you about that. If you know today you're lost and you need to have your sins forgiven and be right with God, there's one way and one way only to have that happen, and it is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone. I'd love to help you through that. If you're here and you say, this is the church that God is leading us to, I want to join today. I'd love to have you do that. Whatever it is, follow God's lead. Let's worship Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.